Welcome, friends and colleagues. I'd like to take today as an opportunity to take a step to the side and go off on a bit of a tangent and discuss historicity or literalness of the events in the Bible. This uh, is an important topic and it should be covered when we speak about our method. Just as a brief reminder for those who are hearing this for the first time, our method is based on the idea that the Bible is a work of argument and persuasion, that it presents a major idea and uh, several, many or maybe hundreds of accessory ideas. And uh, it teaches us not only in the philosophical sense by speaking to the mind through well-considered dialectical reasoning, but it also teaches us with stories, with uh, poetry, with metaphor, with archetypes, with reaching deep into the listener's or reader's heart through a variety of mechanisms. So the question that then arises is, uh, does that mean that it's a work of literature? Does it means, mean that it's things that I described, events that I described, the history that is described, that it's not literal? Does it mean that it is an inspired book, that it's a, 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 using a term that's uh, uh, been popular for many years, inspired literature, work of men who were inspired by something deep. And uh, to, to explain why this is not so, um, and why this tremendously influential and uh, inspiring, yes, book, uh, the most influential book in history that not only changed men's views, but continues to influence, guide, and direct the flow of history. That this book uh, is impossible to duplicate. It's sort of like uh, an argument that the Muslims make about the Quran. It's in inspired and rich poetic language is in itself a proof of its divinity. Uh, in our case, we would say that the tremendous depth, if you read it properly, if you know what to look for, you know how to relate to it, the tremendous depth of uh, sophistication of the Bible's argument is in itself proof of its divine origin. But still, in the recent times, we've come against the conundrum, which is especially acute in relation to Genesis, the creation story with which we are now involved, and uh, subsequent uh, chapters, which talk about, talk about the beginning of the world uh, and how it evolved. The problem is that the science simply seems to be not uh, there. Uh, to support it. <clears throat> now, that is somewhat of a problem, definitely it's somewhat of a problem, and uh, it's a problem that's not new. This is a problem that uh, has been around for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, it was engaged with 
as early as Alexandria with uh, Philo, Philon Eudes, uh, who uh, interpreted especially the story of creation, but also others um, in an allegorical sense. It became more acute uh, with the advent of Christianity, who had to resolve the contradiction between the Old Testament emphasis on the covenant and practical laws and the faith that they were teaching. The, the Epistle of Barnabas, for example, uh, took on the challenge of the uh, dietary laws, Kashrut, by reinterpreting everything in the section that talks about it in an allegorical way. So, uh, when it says that you should not eat, let's say, a pig, it means that you should not associate with people who show pig-like qualities. Uh, don't, don't roll in the mud with the pigs. Uh, if uh, hawk is forbidden, it's because it's aggressive and it tells uh, us not to be aggressive and cruel like a hawk who tears their prey and mid-air, etc. One outstanding feature of this, which was not in Philo and is not a feature, specifically is not a feature of Jewish allegorical interpretation, and again, it takes only a minor role, in the whole corpus of rabbinic literature, is that because of the general uh, Jewish penchant for multiple levels of interpretation, one of which does not take away from the other, the simple meaning, well, biggest not kosher, it cannot be eaten, would not take anything away from any possible allegorical interpretation of it. That's not the case with the Christian interpretation, where Allegory is the meaning of the verse. The, the, it, it would be important for us to focus on one question, and I want to show that um, Abraham seems to be the pivotal issue and the history from Abraham on. So uh, some Jewish thinkers also um, where were moved to uh, try to interpret uh, the Bible as telling us a story which is in its essence a historical. Uh, Rabbi Amit Kula wrote a book called Existential Non-Essential, where he argues that none of the Genesis needs to be interpreted literally and argues that, quote, Abraham lives in the heart of the Jewish people. For, the focus will be on Abraham because this is the crucial test, as I will explain. Um, St. Augustine also, many years previously, um, argued for uh, allegorical interpretation. He wrote a book on the literal meaning of Genesis, where he argued that uh, Genesis um, 
is uh, is not to be taken literally. And then it he said that the Christians are having a problem with the pagans because the pagans look at the Bible and already at that time the science of the time and the literal meaning of the Bible was not really compatible. And uh, we got a problem, he says. We have a problem that the pagans um, are not are not um, uh, willing to accept uh, the the Bible because of its uh, contradiction with the current science. If this was true in that time, then how much more so is it true in our time, where the science has very much gone far away from uh, the literal meaning of Genesis. I'll read to you from St. Augustine passage from uh, uh, the literal interpretation of Genesis, written in the 5th century, and it says, I'm quoting, It not infrequently happens that something about the earth, about the sky, about other elements of this world, about the motion, rotation, or even the magnitude and distance of the stars, about definite eclipses of the sun and moon, about the passage of years and seasons, about the nature of animals, of fruits, of stones, and of other such things, may be known with the greatest certainty by reasoning or by experience, even by one who is not a Christian. It is too disgraceful and ruinous, though, and greatly to be avoided that he, the non-Christian, should hear Christians speaking so idiotically on these matters. And as if in accord with Christian writings, that he may say that he could scarcely keep from laughing when he saw how totally in error they are. In view of this, and keeping in mind constantly while dealing with the book of Genesis, I have, insofar as I was able, explained in detail and set forth for consideration the meaning of obscure passages taking care not to affirm rashly one meaning or the prejudice of another, and perhaps a better explanation. In short, I'm skipping a few lines, it must be said that our authors knew the truth about the nature of the skies, but it was not the intention of the Spirit of God who spoke through them to teach men anything that would not be of use for them for their salvation. Now, in some way, the problem is the same. In some way, it is worse because our science is a lot more convincing than what the pagans derive through reasoning and observation. On the other hand, we, particularly now, are living in the era of uh, the uh, demise of the prestige of science. It has become clear that scientists are just men, like the rest of us, and that they often dissemble and are often wrong. The COVID epidemic, the debacle with the mask mandate, uh, the multiple uh, scandals uh, about suppression academia and all that, uh, unlike at the times of St. Augustine when what was derived by reason and observation was undoubtedly true, was thought to be undoubtedly true, uh, nowadays there is a lot of doubt. Now, I've done research myself, and the scientific method is great. Uh, it has led to uh, immense betterment of human life, health, if not happiness. 
but it by definition doesn't allow God. If there is an event, it has to be by definition explained in natural terms. So this limitation of science is a major limitation, and all it would take to shake the supremacy of science is a few good acknowledged miracles. But back to our topic. So, allegory. So we, we said that uh, to the Christian allegory is the real meaning. And uh, you find it already in the New Testament, like in Galatians 4.21-31, to where Paul says that Abraham's family is an allegory. The response to that, of course, it, that it's, it's not, or if there is allegory, it's only one of the meanings of the verse, but it does leave us with the problem that we've been discussing. Is it literal? Is it not literal? The Bahor Shore was a medieval commentator who appears to have known Latin and uh, be quite unusual for his time in medieval Germany. Uh, he, in his commentary on the Torah, he argues that the Torah is not an allegory. For those who are interested, um, you can read an article by, by Shai J.D. Cohen, S-H-A-Y-E is the first name, uh, in, uh, on Torah.com. Uh, and it's interesting that Bechor Shor actually uses the word allegory spelled out in Hebrew characters. Uh, and he argues that it's not possible for Jews to accept the method of allegory because it subverts the simple meaning, the, the, the actual meaning. Um, and he's thinking of the Christian use of allegory, of course. Now, on the other hand, in the Middle Ages, we find quite a few passages among the Rishonim, the early authorities, especially those informed by the Andalusian and uh, um, traditions of Provence, who say outright that uh, things in the early Genesis are allegories. But, for example, you can look at, at uh, Morin of Achim, at uh, the God of Perplex in the very beginning. But, at least I have never seen them saying anything allegorical about Abraham or his family. And I think here is the crucial point. Others who um, clearly say that the events in early Genesis are not literal uh, is the uh, Ramban, Nachmanides in his commentary, uh, and uh, Ralbag, Kirsanides, um, in his commentary on Genesis 2, 1, 2, 4, and also when we talk about the four rivers of Genesis, he has a long uh, discussion of this. So this is pretty well accepted. Now, the question is, is it accepted in general, or is it accepted up to a certain point in Genesis? And here we come to something that's known as the Languedoc controversy. To make it very brief, uh, the Rashbo, 
Rabbi Solomon ben Aderet, who lived 1235 to 1310, was disturbed by reports he was hearing about Languedoc, which Informed by the Spanish approaches and taking them even further, there were uh, many people who would publicly teach allegorical interpretations. That trouble Rajbo, who was a student of Nachmanides, uh, who synthesized the Spanish and the German Frankish traditions, uh, would I would say giving more prominence to the latter and therefore ensued the Languedoc controversy. I will not go into it uh, too far, but the main actors in it was Rashba, Rabbi Solomon ben Aderes, Abba Mori ben Moshe, a businessman in Languedoc who, who started the controversy and collected the letters uh, and publications from his side only in the book called Minhat Knaot, the offering of zealousness. And Levi ben Avram ben Chaim, an itinerant scholar whose book Livyat Chen uh, had five parts dealing with natural science and philosophy and one part dealing with divine law. Uh, some parts of it have been discovered, including part five about divine law and published recently. What the Rashba ultimately put forth and publicly announced and is communicated those who uh, teach a particular kind of allegory is this. So he writes, first of all, uh, in his letter, I became enraged with zeal for the Lord God of Israel when I saw a man of the holy seed defiling himself with the food of the Gentiles, destroying the narratives of the Torah with allegory, while she, the Torah, had no one to inquire and save her. The issue is described by Abba Mori in his Minhas Knaos and then echoed by the Rashba in his pronouncement. He said that even in synagogue uh, sermons, it's been said by some young people that the biblical narrative concerning Abraham and Sarah contain a layer of meaning regarding Aristotelian physics, that uh, basically uh, Abraham is form, tzura, and um, Sarah is matter. So just as the man shapes the product of the female, so the tura shapes the the, the 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 form shapes the matter, um, and that people who say this are valuing the allegorical meaning more than the uh, actual narrative about the patriarchs. So uh, Rashbo tried to enroll by his Ben Crescas, a famous philosopher in Catalonia. Um, without uh, real success. Uh, letters went back and forth. Um, 
another issue that came up with about stopping the, Joshua stopping the sun. Um, and um, ultimately, Rajbo uh, announced a ban and then requested that the same ban be issued in Languedoc, which the Languedoc community ignored. But he decreed, so here's I'm quoting from Minhat Knaot, we have decreed and accepted ourselves and our progeny, those who are joined to us with the force of a ban, that no individual from among the members of our community should study the works of the Greeks that are composed of natural science and metaphysics, whether in their own language or, or whether they were translated to another language, until age of 25. And that no one from our community should teach another who is younger than 25 of, uh, <coughs> of the sciences, lest those sciences entice him to follow them and cause him to depart from behind the Torah of Israel, which is above all those sciences. So let's come back. Uh, it seems to me that a major issue, the, the Rashford did not uh, prohibit the study of the Guide of Perplexed or Gersonides or any other uh, commentaries that uh, utilized allegorical approaches. But he did forbid the study of actual philosophy, physics and metaphysics but only until age 25, where presumably after age 25, certainly at that time, people would be mature enough to be able to reconcile questions and stay within the fold. What's interesting, though, for many of the sources I quoted, certainly Abamori picked up on that, uh, the passage from Galatians that I quoted, uh, Abraham seems to be the actual breaking point. As I said, we don't find uh, Jewish commentators from that era using an allegorical approach about Abraham and Sarah. And in fact, attempts to do so is what appears to have brought about Rashbo's involvement in the ban. Uh, so it seems that everyone accepted the non-historical interpretation of Genesis up to Abraham and Sarah, but not afterwards. And uh, that's actually very well supported by the biblical text itself, in that the, the, the realia of Abraham and Sarah, the way they portrayed as living, uh, has been well supported and, 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 and uh, complemented by archaeological discoveries. Um, no person uh, in later years could have known what they did in ancient Sumer and Babylonia and the code of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I'm sorry, uh, of, of uh, uh, the, the, the code of uh, Hammurabi, um, which, which are echoed multiple times in the narratives about the patriarchs. So it, it does seem more historical uh, with, with attention to those details. But let's take a step back to the philosophy of it. Why would it be okay to interpret uh, Genesis up to Abraham and Sarah allegorically and not okay to interpret 
the, the narratives about them allegorically. What is the difference? So you might say that, well, there's nothing contradicting the narratives of patriarchs, whereas the physics and the science uh, of Genesis is contradict, contradicting our understanding. Okay, that, that may be true. Uh, I would offer uh, Kitchens, that's his name, a professor of uh, Egyptology uh, and a uh, fervent Christian who wrote the book on the reliability of the Old Testament. I would offer that as a starting point of discussion on that topic. But I think there is a much bigger issue in play. Remember that we, uh, the Jews, see Genesis, most of Genesis and Exodus and the rest of the Holy Read as talking about us. This is our history. This is a history of a nation that got charged with fixing the flaws, intentional, albeit they may be, of creation. We cannot promote this concept. We cannot teach the world with any sense of confidence. We cannot be the holy people and, and the kingdom of priests if we don't believe that things that happened to our forefathers are real. It's the national history that supports our claim on the world stage. And not particular philosophical ideas, which can be argued, uh, and not general consensus, because it's certainly not in our favor. What we need to stiffen our backs is history. Starting with our forefathers, with the patriarchs, anyone who would uh, make patriarchs not real and talks about the ideas like Rabbi Mitkula, that they live in our hearts, even if they didn't really live, removes the battery that drives a Jewish survival and a Jewish message. And I think this is why um, we do not find allegorical interpretations of Abraham and Sarah, and to the extent we find them, they're frowned upon and even excommunicated, and why uh, allegorical explanation is also guarded regarded with suspicion, and if utilized, is utilized as an additional layer of meaning. So to conclude, fine. Maybe the actual story of Genesis in the beginning is allegorical, is a lesson that's being taught to us, but don't touch our forefathers. Now, personally, I was brought up in the environment where all of Genesis was literal. Uh, there are parts of modern Orthodox Judaism where it is more acceptable to, see, to read, to, for it to be read in allegorical ways, just like uh, there are many parts of Christendom in which it is acceptable. The Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and uh, mainline uh, Protestant denominations do formally accept allegorical explanations of Genesis. They don't, by the way, make a distinction between Abraham or before Abraham. 
Uh, I think it's a survivable approach. It has uh, support from the Middle Ages, which which is where our faith and our approaches to to everything have been defined and normalized. But I still long for literalness. Uh, it would be so much easier and so much more religiously meaningful if everything in the Bible was literal. And from time to time, something happens that revives these hopes. I'll briefly speak about the the recent findings in Kirbet al-Hamam. This is a area in uh, the north east of the Dead Sea, uh, which was well known for some time uh, to contain uh, ruins of a city that appears to have been burned in some kind of conflagration. What's remarkable about it is that no man-made conflagration could have achieved what we see there. We have stone that's glazed into glass. We have layers of ash. We have melted down uh, stone and, and metal. Um, the temperature in the city must have been much higher than anything uh, achievable with technology available at the time. This wasn't some invading force that burned the city down. Recently, about a month or two ago, uh, the controversy about interpreting this finding has flared up again. You can follow the literature, but there was a paper published that claimed that this was the location of Sodom. And, of course, if you're a scientist, you cannot provide a supernatural explanation, but it was hit by a meteor. I guess that's the best they could do. And, uh, of course, the response of more left-leaning archaeologists was nonsense. Sodom was in the northwest uh, area uh, near Dead Sea. And this is an old, uh, an old uh, discussion based actually on biblical uh, hints of how Sodom is described. Uh, for those who are interested, you can look at Parshat Vayera in the places in the Parsha of Yoel Elitzur. Um, there seems somewhat more evidence for it being locating, located in the south than the north, but uh, there is also evidence for the location that would fit with Herbat al-Hamam. It's a fascinating topic, but it's not for now. Uh, the point is that a city was found of a large city of 45 to 60,000 people that was destroyed in a tremendous flash of energy that no one on earth could accomplish and may not even be accomplishable at our times, even with a nuclear explosion. You don't see these things. Um, and uh, it revives the hope that as science progresses, we will see more evidence for more little readings of Saddam. Um, those who say it could not be Saddam, those who manipulate the chronology to place it about 200 years before uh, the story of Abraham, and there are ways to deal with that as well in terms of chronology. 
um, and the ones that invoke the location in the south rather than this location in the north, um, are performing the function that allegorical readings performed for the early Christians. They take the meaning out of the simple meaning of the verse and say that the non-simple meaning, the allegorical meaning, is the meaning and the only intended meaning. Uh, so they engage in creative interpretation of the passages uh, uh, and creative interpretation of their archaeological evidence. Certainly, if you have a description of an event uh, in the work that clearly is based on the extremely day-to-day -day minute knowledge of the time, uh, you'll have to invoke it to explain this archaeological, very unusual finding, but they don't want to. Okay, we know why, we do understand why. Um, it occurred to me that you can also resolve the south Western location with uh, this northeastern find, find uh, because Sodom wasn't the only city that was overturned. There was Sodom and Amora, uh, the Mount Sfuim, which seems like twin cities. Uh, the finding in Herbet al Hamam, by the way, which means the, the destroyed area of heat, um, is compatible with it being not necessarily Sodom, but one of the cities as well. So location is not an issue. We will continue to long for the return of the literal interpretation for every uh, Bible sentence and every Bible fact. But for now, it is perfectly acceptable to engage in allegorical interpretations, provided two criteria met. One, it does not take away from the simple meaning. Two, well, at least at least in regard of law and practice. Two, we stop with Abraham and Sarah because, hey, don't touch our fathers. Thank you for listening, and may you have only blessings.